2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1. Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable, because by him the Lord had given the deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Verse 9. So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go, wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. But Naaman was wroth and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Are not Abana and Farfar, rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. And his servants came near and spake unto him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee to do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? How much rather then, when he saith to thee, Wash and be clean? Then went he down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God but in all the earth, but in Israel. Now therefore I pray thee, take a blessing, take a blessing of thy servant. You may be seated. Proverbs 3:34 Surely he scorneth the scorners, but he giveth grace unto the lowly. And as you're here at 2 Kings 5, you might remember that it was pointed out that there are seven characters in this chapter who speak, of which there's something recorded that they said. And the last time that I preached here, we looked at six of those, and today we want to look at the seventh one. We would call him the main character of the story, Naaman himself. This story in 2 Kings 5, though it happened about 2,800 years ago, we should be able to learn from this narrative. We should be able, we as God's people should be able to learn from the, the characters that are given here. Because remember that Romans 15.4 says that whatsoever things were written Whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through comfort and that we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Naaman has intrigued me for quite a long time. I've been able, and I still am today able to identify with him in a few different ways. One of them is that, well, so he has six letters in his name, and the first letter is N, and the last three letters are M-A-N, so I can identify with him there. 
Another way that I identify with him is that he had a problem. Well, he had a problem or two. He had a problem, leprosy, that was beyond his fixing. Uh, he had a problem, so I don't have leprosy that I know of, but I also have a problem that is beyond fixing. I cannot, that is beyond me fixing. Um, it's a hopeless, it was a hopeless situation. It was insurmountable. And the re re end result, of course, is death. There's only one result possible. That was the case for Naaman with his leprosy. That was the case for me. But I'm very happy to say that though it was beyond his fixing, I didn't say that it was beyond fixing his problem. And I think that maybe you are, were in that position too. Thank God for hope in Christ Jesus. Um, the problem that I have, the problem that maybe you had that is much worse than leprosy is the problem of sin. The real problem that Naaman had and the real problem that I had is that of sin. The real one wasn't leprosy for Naaman, it was sin. Thank God that that can be fixed through Christ Jesus. We thank him together, do we not? Well, another way that I can identify with Naaman is that I think it's right to say that his problem, the problem of sin in his life was epitomized especially by pride. And I, I identify with that. I think that Naaman's besetting sin was pride. It seems pretty obvious to me from the text here in 2 Corinthians 5. And I identify with that. Besetting means constantly assailing or obsessing. And for me, my besetting sin is not greed, although I, have, I certainly struggle with that. My besetting sin is not lust, although I certainly struggle with that. It's not laziness, although I certainly struggle with that. It's not selfishness, although I certainly struggle with that. And I just remember Raymond King saying, he's not here today. I don't think he would mind if I would mention that he, we were having a conversation, I imagine 20 years ago or so, and he said something about, I'm so selfish. And I couldn't really identify with that quite but I thought about later that I should have said that, you know, I don't see my big problem as being selfishness. I see mine as being pride. My besetting sin, I can identify with Naaman there. So the title for the sermon today, it's pretty much like the last sermon I preached, Second Kings 5, written for our learning, part two. The other time we talked about six characters. Today we basically want to just look in on the life and of, of Naaman and, and what he goes through here in this chapter. Naaman the Syrian. I would suggest that, well, for the outline, I have four points. And maybe you can identify with the outline Maybe you, hopefully we together can here today. The first point uh, I see in 
Verse 1, and it's what I would call pride revealed. Do you see pride revealed there in verse 1? doesn't say it right out loud, but I kind of think that it's shown there, pride. There's a lot to be revealed about this man, and there's a lot said about Naaman in verse 1. And I just highlight a couple of words, and I thought John highlighted them nicely too. He was a great man with his master. See that? I would say we could call that valuable. He was very valuable to his master, the king. He was a great man with his master. He was also, the text says, honorable. Or we could say venerable. Venerable is a a modern word that means a lot the same. Um, Commanding respect. Worthy of reverence or Looking up to, venerable. He was valuable, great man with his master. He was venerable because he was honorable. And then there's the word or the term, the phrase, a mighty man in valor. He was also a very valiant man. He was valuable, he was venerable, he was valiant. Um, It seems like he had political skills and diplomatic savvy and military expertise, and probably business skills as well. Um, To me, it looks like he was kind of a combination of, let's say, Mitch McConnell and Henry Kissinger and Dwight D. Eisenhower and Donald Trump all rolled together in one, all lumped together. Uh, He had his program together. And just the sight of Naaman striding down the halls of the palace with his ceremonial sword at his side and with a real gaudy uniform with lots of medals on his chest. And his aides and his assistants around him and trailing behind him, it gives the appearance and the atmosphere of pride. There's more to be revealed about this man. And I noticed that John especially emphasized this word. It's the word but in verse 1. But he was a leper. We need to highlight that word and just notice how that changes everything. So here was this pride man, proud man, but he had a problem. Here was this proud and haughty person, but there was something that he couldn't fix. In spite of all of his pride, leprosy proved that it was his pride was only an appearance of reality. The real reality was that he was a sick, dying man. In spite of his pride, Reminds me of me, reminds me of all of us here if we are descended from Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve and Naaman and me and you and every person who ever lived, we learn that the leprosy of sin spoils everything. Just when we thought things were going well and we had our... Had our Ducks all lined up. 
Here comes sin spoiling everything. So verse 1, pride revealed. We see it there. It's only implied, but I think it's there clear and plain. Then as we go from verses 2 through 8, we see, I suggest, pride relenting. Verse 1, pride revealed. Verses 2 through 8, pride relenting. Why do I say that? Well, here we have Naaman appearing to giving the appearance of humility. Why do I say that? Well, look in verse 4 especially. So Naaman had a problem. He went in and told the king about it. Naaman suggested to the king that, well, why don't I try some alternative medicine? And I can just picture him coming into the king's presence that day and speaking to the king in uh, subdued tones and with his head held much lower than usual and even showing uncertainty as he spoke. The appearance of humility, but actually it was only that he was humiliated. Do you see? There's a difference between humility and humiliation. And as he spoke to the king there, I can just imagine that he had the evidence of that dread disease that he had contacted carefully covered and disguised, but it was there nevertheless. It was, it was there. This wasn't only alternative medicine, but it was a bitter medicine for Naaman because he was suggesting of all things that he goes to Israel one of their enemy nations, of all places on the globe, Israel. Well, verse 5, if verse 4 shows the appearance of humility when it was only humiliation, I suggest that verse 5 shows the appearance of Naaman deserving healing. And maybe you're thinking, where do you see that in verse 5? Well, look how he took with him 10 talents of silver and 6,000 pieces of gold and 10 changes of raiment. Although his pride was apparently relenting somewhat, Naaman in pride expected that he could do something to buy his healing. Maybe we could say that a little different. Naaman, maybe we could say that Naaman in pride thought or hoped that he could do something to merit the healing. Looks like that's the case. Maybe he was trying to bribe Elijah into healing him with all the good, filthy lucre. If that's the case, he was a lot like Cain. Maybe he was related to Cain. Cain, way back in Genesis 4, was the propagator of the first false religion. And every false religion since has those hallmarks. Remember that it, the Bible says in Genesis 4 that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground, which speaks of not a lamb, as God had made clear, we're quite sure, but the fruit of the ground. It spoke of his hard work and effort. 
I think it's a picture way back at the dawn of human history of salvation, of attempted salvation by works. And Naaman was carrying on that thought here by taking all that stuff along. And if we are attempting to solve the leprosy of sin problem that we all have, the world would try to solve that by what the Bible calls the way of Cain. In Jude 11, that term is used, the way of Cain, and the Bible carefully says that, that woe unto them that follow the way of Cain. But there is another way to, that actually does solve the leprosy of sin problem, and that's the way of the cross. And I ask you, and as I'm asking myself today, how are you dealing with the leprosy of sin problem that you inherited from your first parents and that you have perpetuated by your sin? Are you attempting to solve that and heal that by the way of Cain? Salvation by works? Or are we doing it by the way of the cross? It's the way of the cross that leads home, you know. Maybe you, maybe we, maybe me, maybe I'm like Naaman. Sometimes seeing the need to back off, to show my pride relenting, to give appearance of humility when it's only humiliation. I remember Raymond Kaufman saying years ago, I think maybe 30 years ago for a guess, Raymond Kaufman was a minister from Plain City, Ohio, and he preached here, I think. And I remember him saying one time that there is only one person that can make you humble. There's only one person that can make me humble. And you know who that person is, don't you? If not, you can look at Genesis, uh, you can look at James 4.10 where it says, humble yourselves in the sight of God and he shall lift you up. Humble yourselves. There is only one person that can humble you, and that's you. There's only one person that can humble me, Raymond Kaufman said, and that's me. Humble yourselves in the sight of God, and he shall lift you up. Many people can humiliate me, but only I can humble myself. Well, we've looked now about at pride revealed in verse 1, and we've looked about pride relenting or backing up just a bit in verses 2 through 8. Now let's look at verses 9 to 13 and to see that pride is rebounding. Pride revealed, pride relenting, pride rebounding. And just to review a little bit, uh, pride can be observed our, my pride can be observed by you, by my demeanor, my manner, and even the way that I hold my head, as indicated in verse 1. Pride can be observed by you in how I come to God, like verse 5 indicates, where I live as, where, as though there's something that I can do to earn my place before God and so that he heals my sickness and forgives my sin. Now we look at verses 9 through 13, and I think it's obvious to you as it is to me in verses 11 and 12 especially that 
A measure of one's pride is how angry he gets. A measure of my, one measure of my pride is how angry that I get. Now, I would quickly say that there are, are other barometers too, besides just that. But like Naaman, our anger or lack of anger speaks long and loud about the pride in our hearts, in our lives, in mine and in yours. Do you notice in verse 11 that Naaman was wroth? Strong word, very angry. And at the end of verse 12, so he turned and went away in a rage. Exhibit A, front and back. Beginning of verse 11, before he starts speaking, end of verse 12, after he starts speaking, the Bible makes clear that he was wroth, he was in a rage. What an angry outburst. So I'm, again, I'm suggesting that there's a great correlation between the pride of my heart and how angry I get. Alfred Ellis has said this uh, on this correlation between anger and pride, and I quote Mr. Ells, Anger is a self-justifying emotion. This means that the nature of anger is to prompt us to justify our position and blame another for the wrongdoing. Justification of self leads to denial of our own complicity or wrongdoing. The scripture warns that the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. James 1.20 An individual who is angry a lot is suffering from pride. End of quote. And then another commentator, right, again on this subject, writes this. Anger is triggered by expecting to be treated in certain respectful ways. And if you are not you become offended. The problem is pride and a sense of entitlement. If you remember that you are complete in Christ, you can adjust your attitude and love a person who otherwise would have offended you. I think those are significant words. Anger or pride rebounding. And we see that rebounding so strongly because of Naaman's anger. Verses 11 and 12. Now I mentioned that there are other measuring sticks that can be used to see about pride in our hearts, in my heart. And just to talk a little bit about those, I tried to make the point that anger is one of the uh, great ways. How angry I get is a great way to show me how proud I am. And Alfred Ells gives a list of 13 like that. And I will just mention two. He says that other evidences of pride in our hearts are, I mentioned, insecurity and not being easily corrected. Think about that. Not only anger, but also insecurity and not being able to be easily entreated or easily corrected. And I just quote again from him on these two points about insecurity. He says, 
Research reveals clergy, and I stop there to say, you know what a clergyman is, right? It's a minister or a pastor. So maybe, unless you are ordained, you don't need to listen to this very carefully, but oh, maybe you should since you're here anyway. Let, let me start again. Research reveals clergy as one of the most insecure of all professional groups. Insecurity is the root of many unhealthy and ungodly behaviors. It provokes us to want the lavish praise and attention of others too much. Much of pride is motivated out of one's unmet need for self-worth. Finding one's identity and security in Christ is a must to avoid pride. And, and again, he says on this issue of not being easily corrected, Mr. Ells says, Ever work or live with someone who won't receive any negative or corrective feedback? This too is pride. A pastor was noted for being easily entreated and able to receive corrective feedback from others. He would thank the person for the negative feedback and commit to pray about it, seek counsel, and get back to the person with what conclusions he came to. He was a role model for many of us. And as I think about that, pride, anger, other evidences of pride, I'm thinking again of Proverbs 3.34, that verse that I read at the beginning of the sermon. And let me just read that again, this time in the Amplified Version. This is Proverbs 3.34. Though he scoffs at the scoffers, and scorns the scorners, yet he gives his undeserved favor to the low in rank, the humble and the afflicted. We understand that this verse is talking about God, of course. Though he scoffs at the scoffers and scorns the scorners, yet he gives his undeserved favor to the low in rank, the humble and the afflicted. And to me it's worth noting and very interesting that that verse, Proverbs 3.34, is quoted twice in the New Testament. James quotes it, and so does Peter. James 4.6, 1 Peter 5.5. 5. And in the New Testament, it's rendered, God resisteth the proud and giveth grace unto the humble. God resisteth the proud. Now, it doesn't say that God resists adulterers. I think that God does, but the Bible goes out of its way, could we say, to say that God resists the proud. It doesn't say that God resists homosexuals. I think he does. It's obvious. And yet, the Bible doesn't go out of its way to say that as it says that God resists the proud. It doesn't say that about murderers. I think God does resist murderers. But it, the Bible doesn't say that as it goes out of its way to insist that God resisteth the proud. And, God doesn't, and the Bible doesn't say that he resists the proud. He says he res, the Bible says that he resisteth the proud. And like you know, that's a present continuous action when that E-T-H suffix is added to a root word. God resisteth the proud. That means that God resisted the proud yesterday and he resists the proud today and he will continue to resist the proud tomorrow. 
and every tomorrow. God resisteth the proud. And here we see an excellent example of that pride rebounding in Naaman's life after he had apparently, after pride had apparently relented just a bit. And if my pride and if your pride has only relented, it's sure, it's just bound to rebound. Did for Naaman, will for us. If our pride relenting is just backing up and isn't deep-seated and real, it's bound to rebound. Then we come to the good part of the sermon, verses 14 and 15. We've talked about pride relenting in verse 1. I'm sorry, pride being revealed in verse 1. We've talked about pride relenting and how that salvation by works is shown there. We've talked about pride rebounding and especially talked about the correlation between pride and anger. Now let's look at pride releasing its grip on Naaman in verses 14 and 15. And the wonderful thing about that is that pride can release its grip on you and me through God's grace. Yet today, in verses 14 and 15, I'm amazed, I am so blessed that this proud, haughty man was willing to be corrected. The servants spoke in verse 13, and this angry, bitter, proud man took that, their advice. In fact, do you think that Naaman's newfound humility here had anything to do with his healing? The fact that he... Well, what do, how do you see that he was now more humble. Now, I suggest that, as I said, that just the fact that he was willing to be corrected speaks volumes about a turn in his attitude about life and about God. He was willing to be corrected. That's a sure sign of New Testament repentance, even though this was way back in the Old Testament time. Another sign that he was gaining in humility, that he had found humility, was that he obeyed the prophet's directions explicitly. Not mostly, not somewhat, but explicitly, wholly. He did it. The Bible expressly says he went and dipped himself seven times in Jordan according to the saying of the man of God. The fact that he was willing to listen on others, the fact that he was willing to obey completely. And thirdly, doesn't say anything here, but I expect that before he dipped into that muddy Jordan River, I think he probably took off and laid aside this ceremonial sword and all the medals that were pasted on the front of his uniform and probably his gaudy uniform too and his expensive watch and all of those trappings were taken off and put aside 
all those emblems of his greatness that are spoken of in verse 1, and all of a sudden he was just a humble sinner in search of God's help. Ray Pritchard says this, So Naaman strips off all the evidence of his greatness and goes down into the muddy water. He dips once and comes up, still covered with leprosy. Dips a second time, sores everywhere. Dips a third time, skin still disfigured. Dips a fourth time, nothing has changed. Dips a fifth time, scabs and sores still cover his body. Dips a sixth time, still a, a leper. I wonder if he thought to himself, this is stupid. I'm being played for a fool. If so, the servant must have said, Master, you've gone this far. Dip one more time and see what happens. So he does. Down into the water he goes. As he comes up, there is an audible gasp from his people gathered on the shore. The leprosy is gone. Scabs gone. Sores gone. Scars gone. Welts gone. Bumps gone. The disease has vanished. His skin is as pure and smooth as the skin of a little baby. It is a mighty miracle, an instantaneous working of the supernatural power of God. The incurable disease has been cured by the hand of the Lord. And his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Something Wonderful has, something more wonderful has just taken place. Something much, much more wonderful has just taken place than the fact that his leprosy with all the, the scars and sores and bumps and welts gone, something better has happened. Something much, much more wonderful has just taken place. And I read these two sentences again. It is a mighty miracle, an instantaneous working of the supernatural power of God. The incurable sin of disease, the incurable disease of sin has been cured by the hand of the Lord. I think that not only Naaman's skin, but also his heart came like a little child. To me, it's pretty obvious that he has been born again in the Old Testament way of that happening. Something much, much more wonderful that has just happened than that his leprosy is gone, but his disease of sin is inside as well as the outside has just been gone. It's disappeared. And I notice in verse 15 three evidences of Naaman being cured inside as well as outside by his response in verse 15. First, we see his recognition of the one true God when he says, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. And for a man of his caliber from Syria, not an Israelite, to say that, the one true God, only one God, and he's the God, he's Israel's God, that's recognition, that's a highly significant statement that he makes there. He recognizes the one true God. Micah Carty has said, and I quote, The gospel is no fan of pride, 
continually through the gospel, we see that our sinfulness and mistakes make us unacceptable to God. And unless Jesus covers our sin and shame with his righteousness, we will forever be away from him. The gospel tells us that we cannot do it on our own, no matter how much our pride tells us we can. The only way to see things correctly is through a gospel perspective, one that says, I am not great, God is. When that is our view of life, we can begin to react to pride in appropriate ways. Basically, that's what Naaman was saying, was it not? I am not great, God is great, in that recognition of the one true God. I see also that he says, I pray thee. Are those three words significant? We would say, in our words, we would say, please. And not only has Naaman's life been changed and cleaned on the outside and on the inside, because And an evidence of that is not only that he recognizes the one true God, but he also has respect. He uses common uh, politeness. He says, please, I pray thee. Somehow I think that's kind of important. Somehow I don't think that that was one of Naaman's honorable as he was and valiant as he was. I don't think that was one of his strong points. General politeness. In fact, going back to 11 and 12, isn't, isn't it enlightening, isn't it instructive that the Bible twice says that he went away? Verse 11, beginning, but Naaman was wroth and went away. Verse 12, the end, so he turned and went away in a rage. I think that, I'm just guessing that he was a very impolite man. There's evidence of that there. That really is very unpolite and disrespectful, isn't it, when we are in a discussion or talking or in an argument with someone and we turn our backs and just walk off? Just to say that I think this respect, this newfound respect, speaks well of the new Naaman. Recognition, respect, and he also has a good response. Still in verse 15, when he says, Now therefore, I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. So he wants to give these gifts, and they are politely refused. Why why did Elijah refuse those gifts? I think Elijah was making the point that it wasn't me, it was God. I'm not great, but God is great. But I appreciate that Naaman responded this way in gratitude. Though they were refused, though the gifts were refused, I certainly appreciate his gesture. It reminds me of what John Yu has various times said. As we think of the place of works in the Christian life. And we know that salvation is not by works. 
Certainly it's not by works. Not of works of righteousness which we have done, but, to, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. There's various other verses that we could quote about how that salvation is by grace through faith. What is then the relationship of good works to salvation? And John, you has often said that we don't work to be saved, but we work in appreciation for our salvation. I think that's what might be shining through there just a little bit. So, three evidences of Naaman's new life. Not only a new lease on life outside, but much more importantly, much more long-term is his new life in, inside. Three evidences of that. He recognized the one true God. He was respectful, and he had an appropriate response. And as we come close to the end of this sermon, maybe you're thinking, yeah, but how can pride be released in my life? Uh, what, how, yeah, well, I understand that it needs to be, but how shall it be? Well, let me just, how can pride be released? Micah Carty has given four points, which I just give for you to consider. I think there's a lot to be said about that under the, um, the Holy Spirit's working in our life. Four points on how pride can be released in my life. Uh, number one, maybe we should get the hard one out of the way first. Give people permission to point out pride in your life. Give people permission to, pride, to point out pride in your life, says Micah Carty, and I think he's on to something there. Give people permission to point it out, and then when they do, accept it in a humble way. Number two, focus more on God than on yourself. So when I recognize that I have a problem with pride that often can lead me to looking inside at my heart. Introspection is the big word. That can often lead to looking inside and saying, but when I look inside, that often just fosters pride. It can. So focus more on God than on yourself. I think this is so significant. In place of that, in place of... Uh, premium and a lot of work on looking inside and introspection, meditate instead on what Christ has done for me. Meditate on what Christ is doing for me. Meditate on what Jesus is, the wonder of new life in him. <coughs> How can pride be released in my life? Number one, give people permission to point out pride. Number two, focus on God through his word. Don't focus on myself. Focus on him. Number three, you knew this was coming, right? Pray about it. Teach me, Lord, about humility would be an appropriate, honest prayer. And don't say, Lord, make me humble. Or, yes, don't say, Lord, keep me humble, as a preacher once said, but more fitting, much more fitting is, Lord, make me humble. 
focus on prayer. Give people permission to point out pride. Focus on God through his word and pray. And the fourth point that is given here is remember, remember. After the Lord has taught you a good lesson in humility, as painful as that may be, don't forget to remember it, Mr. Carty says. Every lesson remembered saves somebody, saves me from needing to relearn it. If I can remember it, I don't have to relearn it as easily or as often. Remember. Reminds me of Ben Franklin. Remember how he was with an acquaintance one day? They were engaged in conversation and were walking down a hallway and all of a sudden the acquaintance said, Stoop, stoop. And Ben, with his head still high, didn't heed the advice and slammed his head into a low beam. And the acquaintance said something like this. If people would only learn to stoop for real, they wouldn't have to have so many headaches. Not the exact words, but the lesson there. If people would only learn to stoop inside, there wouldn't have to be so many inside headaches. You understand, don't you? Well, the thing about Ben Franklin is that he remembered that for the rest of his life, and much he would often bring that up, and much later he would refer back to that, uh, how that lesson was a help to him that day. But it continued to be a help only because he remembered it. Every lesson that you remember about humility saves you from needing to relearn it. And I think that if you're smart enough to understand that concept, then you're smart enough to remember it as well. Even if you need to enter it into your smartphone so that you can remember. Remember. How can pride be released in my life? Again, give people permission to point out pride. Number two, focus more on God than on yourself. Through God's word. Number three, pray. And number four, remember it. Remember. I only have one more thing to say, and that is um, a verse that's found twice in the New Testament, including 1 Peter 5 5. After I quote this phrase, let's kneel together in prayer. God resisteth the proud and giveth grace. To the humble. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we're sobered by the truth of your word and especially that of how that you resist the proud. God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Thank you for that word, but in the middle of that phrase but giveth grace to the humble. And I pray, Lord, that you would pray, pour out your grace upon us as we seek to serve you in humility and grace, Heavenly Father. Thank you for the life and testimony of Naaman way back there in Old Testament times, way back there in 2 Kings 5. He was a proud and haughty man. An arrogant Heavenly Father. It seems obvious from the text in various ways and places. But he was a, became a changed man as he 
learned humility by the grace of God. Thank you that for new life, for that new lease on life for him. Healing from his leprosy. Thank you much, much more, Heavenly Father, that he was healed inside and became a humble man that you could use. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that that, that wonder-working power of God's working within is alive and well, even in our day and age. And thank you for the way that you've changed our lives. And I pray that you would continue to change us so that we can be changed from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord, increasingly growing in that wonderful Christian virtue of humility, Heavenly Father. So I pray, would you continue to humble us and make us humble before you? And one of these days, this will all be done, and you will take all your children home. Even so, come Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.